the first time I, I, I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't grow up hearing about Samson. I didn't grow up hearing Bible stories and, and uh, didn't really know really any of this stuff. But I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I, I was trying to remember if it was when I was uh, a brand new, brand new Christian, 1992 VBS, or if it was 1993 VBS, I don't remember which, but uh, we did, probably someone out here can recall off the top of their head, but we did Samson as part of the story, and I was an eyewitness reporter, and we had a camera and a microphone, and I was reporting all the events that were going on, and I didn't know, uh, I didn't really know the story. I kind of learned the story, and then I'd report on the story, and uh, and so I would, um, I was amazed by all the stuff that uh, Samson did. And uh, really just astounding type stuff. And we're going to read about a lot of that stuff today. And I remember thinking what a hero Samson was. And uh, what, a, what, what an amazing thing that God would make him strong like that. And that God would use him. And he was a judge of Israel. And that all seemed kind of cool. And, um, and, and then, then I read the story again. And uh, there's a lot more to Samson than really cool stuff that he did. And so we're going to take two weeks and talk about Samson and uh, how the Lord used him. And uh, I think you may be surprised at what we learned today. I was surprised as I studied through this just to see uh, really what God had in mind in the person of Samson and what he intended to accomplish through him. And so we're going to spend some time today looking through that. And, and um, the Samson story is pretty complex and it's it's pretty big and there's a lot to it. And so uh, I want to go to the Lord and ask him for his blessing and his help today that we would that we would dig into his word and we would find what he would have us find. So let's let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, we uh, come to you and we do worship you. We rejoice that we can know you. We give you praise. Lord, we uh, we worship you today. We lift you up and we honor you. Lord, I pray as we turn to your word now that you would uh, calm our hearts that we would not be thinking about what has gone before or what comes after, but that we would be engaged right now with your word, that you by your spirit would work in our hearts, that we would be sensitive to what you have for us, that we would be responsive to what you have for us. Lord, help us to think well, help us to read well, and I pray that you would do your work by your spirit in our hearts. We offer you this time, this is yours this is yours, and we are your people, and this is your word. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So you'll notice as you, as you look at your outline that you can find in the, in the bulletin there that uh, there's a sort of a, a theme of, of fire that's going on here. And I didn't just make that up. As I was reading through this, I like to lay out things. I'm very visual, so I like to uh, print off the whole chapter or the passage that I'm going to be studying, sometimes the whole book, depending on how big it is. And, uh, and then I like to, I like to highlight and color and mark and, and play with crayons, basically. And it helps me study. I, it really does. It's not just playing. But what I noticed is the word fire and flame and things like that as a recurring theme throughout Samson. And so I kind of picked up on that theme and, and I think, I think, uh, I think it fits well. Um, and so you'll, you'll kind of see what I mean by that as we look through this. But we've been looking through the, the book of Judges, going through it and uh, looking at a judge at a time or maybe breaking one into a couple of days uh, or uh, something like that. But we're trying to work our way through and we're trying to see what God is communicating to us through the book of Judges because we have a book in front of us as well as what he was trying to communicate to the people of Israel during the time it was happening. And so uh, we've been we've been studying through that, and it's been 
It's been uh, a challenging study. It's not always encouraging, is it? When you read about these judges and you read about the kind of things that they did, what they stood for. And uh, we were discussing in Connect Group this week, you know, Jephthah. And how could Jephthah have done that? And what all does that mean? And, and, uh, and we're going to see a couple of more of those type things with Samson. And we haven't even gotten to the bad part, folks. That's coming. <laughs> That's coming in a couple of weeks. But there's a lot there. The Lord has a lot for us there. And so we're going to look at Samson today. Samson's a little bit different uh, in, in various, various aspects. And we're going to talk about what some of those are. But he's not a normal kind of judge. He's not a judge like the others. The others seem to be like a, a general. He would marshal the troops and he would go uh, to battle with his army against the invading forces. And you never see Samson do that. Samson is on his own. And, you know, he's pretty tough because he can, you know, whoop up on large numbers of people. And uh, we're going to see that today. But, but he's on his own. And he acts on his own. And he moves on his own. And he also seems to respond to personal grievances. And he's getting revenge personally. He's a very, very interesting character. So I said we're, we're going to uh, have this uh, theme of fire. And, and uh, you're going to see why that is. But the first point there is the spark. Right, there's just a little bit of a spark going on. Uh, first of all, let's let's kind of lay the, the found work and look at the Lord's discipline. That first section there, let's look at the Lord's discipline. If we look at 13, we have a familiar verse that we could find nearly anywhere in this book, right? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines this time for 40 years. Gave them into the hand of the Philistines. So sometimes the people group changes. Uh, this time we're working on the Philistines. And, and the length of time there, it says, uh, gave him into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. That's a significant time, right? That's a, that's a, a, a pretty long period of time. And I thought, well, I wonder if, uh, if that's, you know, more, a larger period of time than is typical in the book of Judges. And so I look back at the others who record how long they, uh, they were under the, the boot of these, uh, the oppressors. And sure enough, the first one was eight years and then 18 years and then 20 years and then seven years and then 18 and then 40. And so this is double of what the previous longest time that they had been under the rule of someone else was. And so, uh, that's significant, and I think we're going to look at that a little bit and, and see what's going on there. That's the first significant thing about, about this situation is that it was for so long, 40 years. And second of all, you don't see any mention of the people crying out. The people don't cry out. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And as we read the next three chapters, we will see nowhere that the people cry out to the Lord. They're not calling out to God for salvation. That's going to become a significant theme later on. But, but for now, I just want you to make a mental note of that. And uh, we're going to come back to that. So that's, that's the Lord's discipline, right? The people disobey. God gives them into the hands of the Philistines and they rule them over, uh, rule over them for 40 years. Well, second of all, this, uh, this next section, we talk about the Lord's intervention. The Lord's intervention. First of all, we have his discipline. Now we have his intervention. So continuing where we left off in chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites. You don't read about the Danites very often in the Bible, but here they are, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful 
and drink no wine or strong drink or eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save the people from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, and uh, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So here you have this this family, and the wife is barren. We don't know her name, um, but uh, Manoah is her husband. The wife is barren, and the Lord comes, and he says, I'm going to give you a son, and not just any old son, but a very special son. And these are the instructions, even while you're pregnant. Okay. First of all... Um, you shall be careful to do certain things. Don't drink wine. Don't don't uh, even eat anything of the fruit of the vine. Uh, don't eat anything unclean, etc. And he himself, uh, he shall he shall touch no fruit of the vine. So that means no raisins, right? It wasn't just don't get drunk. It was no no raisins, uh, no no grapes, no fruit of the vine at all. That's that's first of all. Second of all, don't eat anything unclean. And then thirdly, never cut his hair ever, right? Never cut this guy's hair. And so, so those are the instructions laid out. And so this is, this is the Lord beginning to intervene in this situation with Israel in captivity, basically, uh, of these, of these Philistines. The Philistines are, are, uh, ruling the nation right now. And so the Lord decides he's going to intervene. He's going to do so in the form of a child, a son given to a woman who could not bear a son. And so uh, the Lord is at work. So we have the Lord's discipline. We have the Lord's intervention. And now we have his blessing. If you look at the end of the chapter, uh, chapter 13, right towards the end of the chapter, it goes on. There's a big discussion between Manoah and his wife and the angel and all of these things. It's a very interesting chapter. But the crux of the matter is that down in verse 24, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And just pause there for a second. By the way, Samson is, uh, it means like little son, like not son, S-O-N, but S-U-N. Like it's it's almost homage to the sun god. It's kind of weird that they would name him that. It's it's odd that they would choose a name that was almost pagan. They could have called him something with an L at the end or or Yah in it somewhere, but they don't. They call him this nearly pagan name. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Machane Dan. Machane means means a camp in the camp of Dan or Machane Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. And so the Lord gives this blessing and it's the Lord begins to stir. This baby's born, his name's Samson, and God begins to stir. The spirit of God begins to stir. And it's not real clear what the stirring looks like, but he's, he begins to stir, right? We get a, a picture just to flash forward a little bit. If you'll flip to um, chapter 14 and look at verse 4. You'll, see, you'll get a, a glimpse into God's plan. Maybe something that had to do with this stirring. Look at verse 4. His father and mother did not know that this situation we're about to read about was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So part of this stirring that God is doing in this young man, Samson, is he is, he is stirring, looking for a fight with the Philistines. God is looking for a fight with the Philistines. He wants to, he wants to cause conflict between the nation of Israel. And the way he's going to do that 
is very interesting. If you'll, if you'll, we, we've been talking about the spark. We move on now to the kindling, right? Spark meets fuel, and that's about to happen. So we have, first of all, Samson's desire. So we move from the Lord's plan, what the Lord is trying to accomplish, and now we're going to switch sides, and we're going to look at Samson, and look at, first of all, Samson's desire. So look at the beginning of chapter 14. Samson, so now he's grown up, went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. He should have chosen as a wife, someone from among his own relatives, or certainly someone from among his own people. That's what he should have chosen. His parents were right. His parents gave him instruction. And what they said was true. He didn't care. And this practice of marrying foreign wives, marrying amongst the pagan nations that lived around them, it's it's forbidden. It's not supposed to happen. If you remember, all through the law, uh, they're, they're told about, about the dangers of marrying uh, amongst pagan peoples. And then you see all through the book of Joshua, that's again in, uh, very discouraged that they would marry such a way. But in the book of Judges, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, talks about, well, they kind of did this all the time. During this period, it was pretty common for people to marry amongst their pagan uh, neighbors. And so that's that's what was going on. So Samson, rather than being ruled by what was right, rather than being controlled by what he should have done, by what God wanted him to do, instead, he was ruled by his physical desires, his own desires. And so you see him making decisions based upon this woman who's a Philistine he shouldn't have even been looking at, but she looked just right to him. And there are some versions that say, she looked good to me. And I think that hits the nail pretty much on the head. His physical desire was driving him. He shouldn't have gone after the Philistine woman. But remember 14.4. The parents didn't know it. This was from the Lord. For God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So God was looking for a fight with the Philistines. So we have Samson's desire. Next we have Samson's trickery. As you, you guys have read this story before, there, there are a lot of uh, uh, cause and effects that go throughout this whole story, like dominoes falling that leads to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And so Samson, uh, his, his parents go and, and they arrange for him to marry this woman. He's traveling down there one time to see her and a lion rushes upon him, right? And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson and he tore this lion apart. Right. And uh, and he kills it right there. But his parents didn't know about it. And um, then later on, the next time he's traveling by when he's going down to the probably going down to the wedding, he stops by to look at this lion and he sees that there is is a, a, a beehive growing inside of this. And there are bees inside of there and, and they've made some honey. And so he wants some honey because he's controlled by his physical desires. And so he reaches in, scrapes out some of the honey and begins to eat it. Right, and he had been. His parents had been given very specific instructions that he should never eat anything unclean, which also means, of course, eating from out out of a dead body, and that's what he had just done. So, so we see, first of all, the the first time that the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him to accomplish something, and it's to defeat this lion. But then also you have that he has broken his Nazarite vows, and he's eaten something unclean. And by the way, that happened in a uh, um, in an orchard, not an orchard, a vineyard. It happened in a vineyard. And he wasn't, not, not only was he not supposed to drink wine, but he couldn't even eat grapes. 
He couldn't eat raisins, nothing like that. And so it would have been a little bit risky for him to have been walking through there, right, while he's traveling to pass right through. But that's where he finds this lion, and that's where he wrestles and kills this lion. So next time he's going through, he, 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 he grabs this honey. And not only that, but he gives some to his parents, right? And, uh, and they eat it too, and they don't know where it came from. Well, then he goes down to the wedding. Remember, he, he's at this wedding, and it's his own wedding, and, and they have uh, 30 companions, uh, maybe bodyguards for, the, for the, the, the wife, I don't know, but 30 companions who are assigned to him, and he decides he's, uh, he decides he's going to, to, uh, to give them a riddle, and if they can answer the riddle, there's a bet, right? And if they can answer the riddle, then he owes he owes them 30 changes of clothing and if they cannot answer the riddle they each owe him 30 changes of clothing no they they owe him 30 changes of clothing and so this is a good deal and it's a bet between them right and so he's having a bet with these other guys and uh, so the riddle he proposes is the one that you see there in uh, 1414 all right this is the riddle they have to answer out of the eater came something to eat out of the strong came something sweet. And they're supposed to figure that out. That's not like a regular riddle. That's not a normal riddle. Really only one person had the clues to answer that riddle, and that was Samson himself, because it was about a personal experience. Right? There's no real way to answer that. It's a little bit like Bilbo and the ring in his pocket, right? What do I have in my pocket? That's not a real riddle. Right? Only you know that. No one knows. no one can guess that. Okay, and that's that's kind of the case with this right here. Well, Anyway, they, of course, they go and they talk to his bride and they, after a while, they threaten her and say, you, you tell us, you need to find out what this riddle means and you need to tell us or else we're going to burn you and your family. And so she gets scared and she, she gets it out of Samson and Samson tells her and, uh, and she goes and, and, uh, and tells them and then they, of course, say, well, here's obviously what the, the, what the riddle means and they say down in verse 18, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And so Samson, of course, is pretty angry. And he responds with more poetry. And he says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Right. And so now, since he lost the bet, he's, uh, he, you know, his, his, his trickery is, is, uh, kind of come back on him. And so now all of a sudden we have him with his vengeance, Samson's vengeance. So again, throughout this story about Samson, he's not motivated based upon vengeance for the name of God or or a desire to protect the nation of Israel or a desire that God's name be holy or anything like that it's personal it's personal with Samson and Samson and here it is too he uh, he seeks for vengeance as the story continues they guess it uh, now Samson has to go and find 30 changes of clothing to pay these guys because he lost the bet right and so you see what takes place in in uh, chapter 14 verses 17 and following. No, it's later than that. I'm sorry. Uh, 17 and following. So uh, uh, chapter 19, or excuse me, verse 19, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That's the second time, by the way, the spirit of the Lord has rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And so Ashkelon is one of the cities. There are about five cities that belong to the Philistines down down by the sea. And that's where he goes, down by the Mediterranean. He goes to Ashkelon, goes down there, and he finds 30 Philistine men, kills those 30 Philistine men, takes their clothing, and goes back and pays his debt. All right? All right? So he, uh, he goes and kills 30 guys uh, for, so he can pay off his debt. 
Interesting that this is the second time the Spirit of the Lord has rushed upon him. The first time was to defeat this lion, and the second time is to go down to Ashkelon and kill 30 of those Philistine men. Okay, So, bizarre story. But as I said, this is a story of dominoes, one after the other. And you have one falling, knocking the other, knocking the next, knocking the next. And the Lord is seeking opportunity against the Philistines. All right? So, well, that's the... That's the spark, Samson himself, and that's a little bit of the kindling. We have a little bit of fuel that's going on there, but there's, there's more. God is, God is desiring more, and so uh, we have point number three, the blaze. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to go into a blaze, a full-on bonfire, and it's going to be fascinating. But it starts with Samson's vengeance again. That's a common theme throughout Samson's stuff is his real visceral responses, his own urges that he has, and if you will... If you will look, starting at the uh, last verse of chapter 14, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Not a fun thing. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. And her father, But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. So that's a, a very curious way to destroy the crops of the enemy, right? When you grab 300 foxes and you tie them tail to tail and then you, you stick a torch in between their tail, of course you can picture the chaos that would ensue, right? And that's exactly what happens. And it's the time of the, time of the harvest. Everything's kind of dry, right? And they just run everywhere and it burns everything to the ground. And so he has his vengeance. He burns their crops right to the ground. Well, of course, the, uh, the Philistines were not happy about that at all. And so, uh, so now we move on to Samson's loss. He got his vengeance again. But now he's going to have his loss because the Philistines find out about it. They find out who did it and they go and find his wife and, and her dad and they, they burn them and kill them. And you have what happens. Verses 6, 7, and 8 of chapter 15. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. And so he uh, he suffers this loss of, of his bride and his father-in-law. They get burned to death. And so he... He uh, fights with him a little bit, strikes them a mighty blow, hip and thigh. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it means he wins. But he doesn't destroy them all. Instead, he runs off and hides. He heads for the hills. And he, f- he finds a, a, a cleft of the rock in Etam, a place where he can hide. So, so we find mighty Samson, who's done all of this, we find him hiding in a rock. And Etam is in, is in the, the region of, jo- of Judah. And so he's, he's actually gone into Judah. And he's hiding there. And, uh, and so that's where, that's where we find him as we move on in the story. So Samson's loss 
is going to lead to Samson's victory. All right, his, his victory. But it's going to come at it in a very interesting way. Remember the dominoes. So he has, he has struck them a mighty blow, hip and thigh. And he has, he has gone and hidden in the land of Judah in the cleft of the rock. And so the Philistines know what has gone on. And so they come and they attack Judah. And Judah says, wait, why are you attacking us? And uh, the Philistines say, well, it's because of Samson, of course. And so they, the, the, the people from Judah, the men of Judah, gather an army of 3,000 people and they go into the hills to find Samson and bring Samson out. And so you have a very ironic situation rising, that you have the Philistines who are a foreign army. They're a foreign people. They're the oppressors. And they come and they apply some pressure to Judah, Israelites, Hebrews. And they say, you need to cough up Samson, who's another Jew. He's another Hebrew, another Israelite. Even though he's from the tribe of Dan, he's one of their own people. And that's that's the force that the Philistines apply to them. And the Judahites, they don't say, nope, sorry, uh, he's one of our people. You, we're we're going to go to battle over this or, you know, you can't have him. No, they gather up an army of 3,000 people and they themselves go looking to arrest him to turn him in because he's causing problems with the Philistines. Very interesting story. Rather than rather than saying, no, you can't have him, or rather than joining joining forces with Samson, which would make sense, Samson's pretty mighty, 3,000 men plus Samson could have gone to battle against the Philistines, but they didn't. They went and arrested him, and they tie him up, and they take him down to the Philistines. And so uh, it's a it's a very interesting and and telling place that we find ourselves. We kind of learn a little bit of what's going on politically, what's happening in the region, what the problem is, right? And so we see what the result is going to be. Look in verse 14. When he came to Lehi, so he's been arrested and they're carrying him down. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. This is the third time. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire. And his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. So Samson retaliates, right? He doesn't fight against the men of Judah. Instead, he fight against, fights against the Philistines. And this time, it's not, it's not 30 men that he kills. This time, it's a 1,000 men. He grabs the jawbone of a donkey, and he goes to war, and he fights, and he destroys a 1,000 of these men. The Lord was seeking opportunity to fight the Philistines, and, and it seems like he's going to find it. And so uh, Samson, at the end of that, as soon as he had finished speaking, so he, he says another poem, apparently Samson-like poetry, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord. By the way, that's the first time we've seen anybody call on the Lord in this whole section. And it's not because he's desirous to see Israel avenged. It's not because he's defending God's name. It's because he's thirsty. And he was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called in Hakore. It is at Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. 
Very interesting story. Now, we're going to pause right there, and we're not going to finish the rest of the story. But I want to talk about some application of this. Samson's a fascinating guy. And God is doing a fascinating thing. And probably the first thing as far as application that I want us to look at is, is probably the, the, the easiest thing to recognize. And that is Samson was controlled by his desires, by his urges, by his, his natural inclinations, his natural desires, very visceral. He looked at a woman and he wanted her, so he did it. He got angry because of the, the, his 30 companions finding out his riddle. And so he went down and he killed 30 Philistines, right? He was angry and so he did this and he was angry and so he did that. He said, I will be avenged and I will get vengeance. And we're going to see, of course, the story is not done. This is not the only woman in his life, nor is she the most famous. We'll read about Delilah next time. But he's driven by very visceral, very base, very natural urges. And so, so of course we can learn a, a lesson from him on that, right? His life could have could have been very different. Now the Lord's at work and the Lord is sovereign, but he didn't have to make decisions the way he made decisions. He didn't have to be governed by his fleshly desires. The Samson narrative would have turned out very different, but but it's going to continue to uh, operate and hinge upon his lusts. This reminds me of First Peter two eleven that if you don't have it memorized, it would be a good one for you to memorize. Let me read it to you. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Why abstain from the passions of the flesh? I mean, you know, which wage war against your soul? That's why to abstain from the passions of the flesh. They wage war against your soul. They, they do battle within you and they kill you from within and they, they turn you into the kind of man that Samson was. Those natural passions. Those passions that are inside of us are at war with the Spirit of God and uh, what the Spirit of God is doing in our inner man. And so we need to cry out to God for deliverance and we need to cry out to God for help in overcoming the corruption of this world that is affecting us inside and, and, and uh, uh, we carry that around in our bodies. So that's the first and that's probably the easiest application to get from Samson. If you want to learn... The quickest thing from Samson, that's probably it. Don't be like that guy. <laughs> that's a pretty easy application, right? But there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more going on. That brings me to our second point of application. Notice the sovereignty of God in this story. What was God's desire? What was God doing in this story? Did he just raise up a judge and then the judge kind of went awry and did his own thing? No, God himself was seeking opportunity with the Philistines. He was trying to pick a fight with the Philistines. And he used Samson's ungodly lusts, his fleshly lusts that were uncontrolled. He used those to pick a fight with the Philistines. That's what God used. God's sovereignty is amazing in this passage. First of all, he gave a barren couple, a baby boy who would grow into a man, and that man would have uncontrolled passions. And then he used that man's uncontrolled passions to disrupt the unrighteous peace that had existed between Israel and the Philistines, their rulers. And he starts small, right? God didn't, God didn't light the fire all at once. It started small, remember? Thirty men from the town of Ashkelon were killed. God uses Samson's lust to accomplish that. Thirty men of Ashkelon are killed so that Samson can get his thirty changes of clothing, right? Then he burns down their crops and things get real interesting. Next thing you know, 1,000 Philistines are dead. God's picking a fight. 
He's picking a fight with the Philistines, and he's using Samson's uncontrolled nature. Samson, the wild man. And God is using him to accomplish his purposes so that it starts very small, and it ends up at this point with a thousand Philistine soldiers being killed. The sovereignty of God in this is amazing. So let's, let's bring it back home real quick. Let's think about our own situations. Are you going through circumstances right now that seem impossible? I know that some of you are. I know that. Some of your circumstances seem impossible. Maybe you have some impossible relationship. Maybe you're dealing with some impossible loss. Maybe you, you're enduring an impossible pain that no one can understand and you can't even tell anybody. Maybe you're up against impossible odds. There is pain in this room and there is pain probably in nearly everyone's heart that we don't tell people about. Certainly we don't tell people fully and we bear it. We carry it around. Remember this and remind yourself about this truth. The God who planned and performed each meticulous step of Samson's story in order to pick a fight with the Philistines The God who planned and put together all of that is also at work in your life for your good and for his glory. He's at work. He is at work. The God of the universe is at work. And he put together this and he used a man who was not easily used. And he accomplished his purposes to pick a fight with the Philistines. The God who does that is at work in your life. Thirdly, this is what really captivated my attention. This is fascinating, right? The Israelites sinned in 13.1. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years, right? That's nothing new. We're used to that, right? 40 years is slightly new, but, but that's nothing new in the book of, in the book of Judges. But what is new is that they never cry out to God for deliverance. They never cry out. They had grown comfortable under the boot of the Philistines. And they served them. And they would even argue with Samson, why would you do such a thing? Don't you know the Philistines are our rulers? Don't you know they're over us? Why are you picking a fight with them? They had grown comfortable there. And God waited 40 years for them to grow tired of it, for them to cry out, for them to ask God for help. And there was nothing. No cry. No cry. They were kind of like that frog in boiling water, right? Didn't even know to jump out. They were content there. They were comfortable there. And this is where it gets powerful. This is where it gets incredible. God himself saw them in that situation, saw them under the boot of the Philistines and apparently content in that situation like a pig in mud. God saw that situation and he stepped into the picture to force a conflict between captive and captor. God was not content with it, however content they may have been. However satisfied they may have been with the situation, God himself was not content with his people being in captivity. He was not content with his people living under those circumstances. And so he stepped in. How far Israel had fallen. They couldn't even muster a desire to get out from under this situation. The Lord himself had to step in and he had to shake the ground and break up this ungodly alliance or truce that existed between the Philistines and the Israelites. It was wrong in every way, and it took God stepping in. And so, church, 
My question for you is, what are we comfortable with in our culture out there or our lives in here that might be just as unnatural and ungodly as Israel's relationship with the Philistines? What do we live with day to day that we should never even consider living with? Think about that. Well, ask anyone, anyone who has moved to Nevada from outside Nevada as an adult. Anyone. And they will tell you legalized prostitution is not okay. Nevadans know this. And we live with it. We live with it. We don't participate in it. But we live with it. We we somehow have made our peace and we continue on. Gambling. Right? The sound, ding, 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 ding. That, that just means you've, you've landed at Reno Tahoe International Airport. That's all that means. You're home. Right? But for people who come out of state, they think, you guys are okay with this? It's, it's in Safeway. You know, you can, it's in Safeway. Right? We, we live with this kind of stuff, but, but those are things, frankly, that are out there. I mean, maybe, maybe we, we don't participate in them ourselves, but we sort of somehow live with it. I think of, I think of abortion also. We don't participate in that probably ourselves, though we might be surprised at how close to home it might hit if we really knew more. But somehow we have allowed things to continue. I don't know how to solve this, but somehow we've allowed it to continue that since the year I was born, there have been 55 million or more babies aborted. But that's all out there. That's all out there. Let's talk about closer to home. Let's talk about in this room or let's talk about in my living room or in my heart or in my relationships. What are those things that are closer to home that might be ungodly truces that we've made? Maybe maybe materialism. I've made my peace with it, right? I just not not a lot of materialism, just just a little, just a little because that's okay, right? Or how about gossip? I'm not a really bad gossip, you know, and other people wouldn't call me a gossip, but, you know, a little gossip is okay. Maybe I've made my peace with that. Maybe it's a a better-than-thou, holier-than-thou attitude. Or maybe it's the other direction. Maybe it's pornography. Just a little little look on the side, a little glance on the side. How about sexual immorality? We live in a culture where it is rampant, rampant, and it's not just out there. It is in the church. Adultery. How about bitterness? Just kind of let it fester. After all, I mean, God has kind of done us wrong anyway, or, or our neighbor has. And, and I'm not really, I don't hate the guy, but, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to sit next to him. Bitterness, selfishness, greed, idolatry. How much of that stuff we read about in the Bible, there is a name put to it in the Bible, and I carry it around in my own heart. I allow it to exist in my own house, in my own life my own relationships. And I've made a truce with it so much so that I'm more content with it being there than with it being gone. That's the situation Israel was in where they would, Judah would get on to Samson because Samson was picking a fight with the Philistines. The Philistines are the bad guys. You should pick fights with them. You should not be at ease with them. You should not be living in a truce. It's unnatural. It's ungodly. It's not right. It's unrighteous. Do we cry for God's help or do we just live with it? Maybe we've just accepted it and maybe we actually kind of like it. 
Do we cry for God's help? Well, usually we do, but the dangerous times are when we don't even bother to ask for his help. We've just made a truce with it. We've decided to live under the boot of something that is is supposed to be a wake-up call in our lives. If that's you, I pray that God would seek an opportunity against your sin. I pray that God would seek an opportunity against our sin, corporately. That he would pick a fight with our sin. I pray that he would do that work for our own souls and for your own soul. I pray that he would shake up your unnatural and ungodly alliance with sin and that he would root it out of your life and my life and our church. I pray that God would do that, that he would pick that fight. And that's God's mercy. That's God's mercy if he chooses to do that. So often we understand salvation as a person realizing they need God's help and they cry out for God's help and he delivers. He brings that salvation. But the truth is a lot deeper than that. The truth is that God is actually more merciful even than that. The truth is that he sends his spirit in advance to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment so that they will know to cry out to God and ask for deliverance. Because without him sending his spirit, without him working in our lives... Without his work, we would never even realize that we need salvation and we would never, never cry out for it. God is so merciful, folks, that he would even convict us of sin. That he would let us know when we were in a lost state that we were in a lost state and we needed help. That's amazing. Think of the mercy. It's not just merciful that, oh, when we finally realize it and cry out, he's there to help us. It's that he makes us realize it. God seeks an opportunity against our sin. My prayer this morning for some of you is exactly that. May God bring you to a place even now where you see your sin for what it is, an infinite sin against an infinite and holy God, and that you would cry out to him and he would give you mercy and deliverance through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you. That's my prayer this morning.